Do what? Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> it's a somewhat familiar way to meet, although uh, not our preferred way of meeting. And uh, as it turns out, we have a light sprinkle here. Um, contrary to what the radar had been saying all the way up, uh, really to this point. So uh, we'll just trust God's sovereignty for that. Let me uh, try to adjust this so we don't, there we go, maybe that's a little better. Um, setting up the studio again here. <laughs> so anyway, I hope many of you are able to uh, at least join us on your computer and uh, be thankful that we don't have to do this uh, as often as we used to and that we can do it even when we can't meet together that we at least have uh, another option uh, to meet online. So welcome, uh, good morning. Uh, I will forego uh, any kind of special music or singing uh, this morning because it would be just me leading and uh, I don't know that you'd sing along and that yeah, I certainly know you don't want it here, just me. But let us do this. Let us at least begin by opening in a word of prayer. And uh, then we'll take a few moments this morning, even though, again, we're not here present. We can at least uh, gather in our own homes, know that we're together, know that the Spirit is with us. And we can open up God's word together and be encouraged, I hope. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll look at our topic this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, that your goodness to us is most wonderfully displayed in salvation, that we who are by nature corrupt, we who are by nature of ourselves um, given to sin and to rebellion, to uncleanliness, uh, have been rescued by you, have been by your sovereign grace forgiven of our sin, and not just because you made that decision, but in that decision, you determined that our sin would be atoned for through the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our Lord, we thank you for coming. Though you existed in the form of God, you did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you humbled him yourself and took on the form of a servant and being found in the appearance as a man, you humbled yourself all the way to death, even death on a cross. And because of that humility, because of that sacrifice, because of that perfect obedience, because of that accomplishment of everything that was purposed for you to accomplish in winning for yourself a kingdom, every knee will one day bow to you. And would we long that even we who have been brought to see your glory and want to and anticipate that day of all worshiping you and acknowledging your glory, uh, we realize how much we fail in this life and how we struggle and uh, sput along sometimes, it seems. But we thank you that our salvation is secure in you. We thank you that our hope is secure in you, that the fulfillment of your promises is not dependent upon us, but upon you. Open our eyes to see this, that we might increase our obedience, our courage, our comforts. And Lord, may this morning and our time together be one part of how you produce that in our lives. And it is to that end, Lord, that I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to look at, as you may have uh, gathered uh, even by the prayer, the topic of hope. The topic of hope. We can never hear about hope too much. Hope is at the very foundation of our lives as Christians and and really even just being made in the image of God. Uh, hope is important to people. Once somebody loses hope, they they lose everything. Hope is what we need. Hope is what has defined God's faithful all throughout the ages is a hope in the character and the person and the promises of God. And it's a hope that has to film, form the foundation of who we are because things are not yet what they will be, and they're certainly not what they should be. Now, hope in a general sense is defined in this way. This is just a dictionary term, but, but it captures it well enough. We'll, we'll unfold this more in terms of scripture, but, but here's a, one way it's defined. It, well, really two nuances of the term, the way we use it is one, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Uh, a feeling that something's going to work out, something's going to happen. Uh, second is this, is that it's a feeling of trust. And of course, um, 
that's putting an emphasis on the subjective, the feeling aspect, but, but that is certainly a part of it. Uh, biblical hope is so much more than that, but it is that inside of us that's able to find comfort and rest and courage uh, because we look forward to something to happen or we are trusting in a person. So let's consider this idea of hope uh, just briefly this morning. Uh, first, by considering the necessity of hope, the necessity of hope. As I already mentioned, hope is essential for us as human beings. Uh, it reaches down into the very uh, depths of our soul. Listen to the psalmist in 62.5. My soul, wait in silence only for, uh, wait in silence for God only for my hope is in him. His hope was what he experienced in the very depth of his soul, and it was resting on God. Proverbs 13, 12 said, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The worst thing that can happen to a person is that they lose hope. As I mentioned, when a person loses hope, they lose all stability in their life. They, they feel as though they've lost everything, and, and the loss of hope produces anxiety, depression, uh, discouragement, fear, laziness, despair, and sometimes even the will to live itself. And yet when we have hope, when a person has a strong and a certain hope, we can endure almost anything, any trying circumstances, temptations. Uh, it provides this inner strength to carry on and to persevere and to be steadfast. It, it lifts us out of whatever our circumstances are to a, a better future, to a better promise, to a better reality. It transcends discouragements by enabling us to see a bigger picture in our lives so that we don't get stuck in the moment, but we can see the big things that God is doing and is working out in his plan for the world and for our lives. It gives us certainty and ultimate joy and justice and righteousness in the midst of a world in which those things are fallen in the streets, when those things are, are rare indeed. And you can imagine then that hope is inextricably bound to the reality of faith. But what is hope? What is hope? Uh, well, there's secondly then the different kinds of hope. Let's consider that. There's a general hope that we have in life, just a, a general hope that things will work out. And of course, scripture acknowledges this kind of hope. Uh, just simply, uh, Paul says, for example, in the book of Philippians, uh, that he has hopes in ministry. And so he says in verse uh, 19 of Philippians chapter 2, uh, let me get into the right book here, Philippians 2, 19, he says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. He says in verse 23, therefore I hope to send him to you immediately as soon as I know how things will go with me. He's not making a a certain prediction of the future. He's just ex essentially expressing that as his desire, a general hope that he'll be able uh, to do this thing that he wants to do. It's a, it, and so it, essentially in that sense, it is just an expression of desire. It's even in a general sense, an external idea there is that, that, that when you love someone, you, you, you hope that the best is going to uh, turn out in their life. You hope that the best, they'll make the best decisions. You have a, a general sense of uh, hope for them that to encourage them that uh, they, they can persevere and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's a general kind of hope. There is, of course, uh, a false kind of hope that uh, people have and that certainly that the world has. There, there are hopes that uh, have built into them the very uh, the reality of disappointment because they're not set on the right things. And of course, in a, in a general sense, and for the unbeliever, there is a, a hope in their own righteousness. There is a hope that my righteousness, that my life uh, will produce good in the end, that when I leave this world, uh, you know, they might say that, that I hope my good works outweigh my bad works, and we'll let uh, God decide that. Uh, one example of that might be in Romans 10, uh, verse 3, where he says, for not knowing about God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They're, they're hoping that their religious effort, they're hoping that their religious diligence, they're hoping that their religious sacrifice, their religious knowledge, etc., will be enough in the end, and of course, uh, it won't be. There's hope in spiritual delusion. When we put our hope in things that are not uh, from the revelation of God, but from our own wishful thinking or from false, uh, or from false religion and so forth. Uh, 
Uh, Ezekiel 13, 6 says this, uh, they see falsehood and lying divination who are saying the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. In other words, false teachers, false prophets come in and, and give these uh, grand declarations and the people are made to hope in it, but it's an empty hope. It's a false hope because it's not grounded in what God is doing and what God has revealed. It's grounded in their own delusion. Another kind of false hope is when there's the hope for fulfillment and joy and satisfaction through sin. When we think sin will meet that greatest need and that greatest desire of our hope, our heart, that's a false kind of hope. Uh, let me just uh, give you this out of Proverbs chapter 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. They say, come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down. And he says, we're going to find precious wealth, houses with spoil, throw your lot in us and so on and so forth. And, and so there's this kind of hope that, that if we pursue a path of wickedness, it's going to bring us wealth and prosperity and fulfillment. But in the end, it won't. It will leave one. It may temporarily bring that, but in the end, it's going to bring misery. It's going to bring disappointment. It's going to bring a sense of futility. And of course, we looked at that uh, even in the life of Solomon himself. Uh, there's hope in the resources of this world. So Psalm 13, 7, a false hope, he says, is a horse and a horse for victory. In other words, in, in that time, a horse was this uh, instrument for battle, strong and swift and intimidating. And if, if the idea there is if you put your hope, an army does, in the, your own resources, uh, ultimately, uh, you're going to find that that's not enough. God, people of God were to put their hope in God. A false uh, uh, a hope in a horse uh, or any instruments or implements of uh, battle is a false hope. We are to hope in God. Uh, so that's it. And there's a, a, a false hope in personal strength and wisdom. Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than him. Uh, there's hope, not a false hope, and not only in just resources, but there's a false hope ultimately in the resource of ourselves that we trust in ourselves. And and of course, this is uh, anathema to Disney, but we live by the word of God, not by uh, the producers of Snow White and so forth. And there's ultimately a hope in wealth, too, that people have. Sometimes people pursue wealth because in that they see the ticket to all of their desires. They see in that their security, their uh, their joy and so on. Hebrews 6.17 says this, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So there's all manner of false hope. There's a false hope in riches. There's a false hope in our own wisdom. There's a false hope in any kind of human resources of strength or victory. There's a false hope in the satisfaction that sin will bring or sinful pursuits. There's a false hope in false teachers and false religions and those who and certainly the ultimate false hope in trusting in ourselves that have a righteousness in ourselves that will bring us into a good and eternal state. And ultimately, in reality, then, unbelievers have no hope. They have no real hope. They have no real hope uh, in this world or in the world to come. And that's precisely how Paul defines uh, all of us outside of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says that they were in verse 12, uh, that you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. You have nothing secure to hope in. There was no hope for you. And whatever hope that unbelievers do have, again, uh, the outside of Christ will only end in destruction. Well, there's much more that could be said about that, but let, let's go on to the, the distinction then, the contrast of that. In, in light of the uncertainty and the futility and the emptiness of all hope outside of Christ, the Christian has a certain hope. It's a certain hope of the gospel. Unlike hopes that are empty, unlike hopes that are built on false promises, unlike hopes that are like catching the wind, uh, the Christian hope is grounded in reality. And, and that's, it's grounded in the reality of who God is. It's grounded in the reality of 
what God has done. It's grounded in the reality of what God has revealed. It's grounded in the reality of the actual appearing and fulfillment of the promises of the Son of God, the actual death of the Son of God in our place, and the actual resurrection of Christ, who is now alive at the right hand of the Father. So you could say that Christian hope is built in reality. Uh, it's not it's not built in uncertainty, but the certainty of what God has done and who God is. There is no possibility of the Christian hope coming up empty. There is no possibility that Christian hope will fail to deliver. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter six. He says, so that we know that by two, or, well, verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters into the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. It is a hope that is absolute. It is a hope that has already in all of its substance been accomplished for us in Christ, who even now is maintaining and encouraging and sustaining us in this hope and the certainty of it uh, at the right hand of the Father as our Messiah. So there's a certainty to Christian hope. And as I noted earlier then, that means that faith and hope are inextricably bound. They, they cannot be separated from one another. Hope is, you could say, a commodity of faith. It's an essential aspect of spiritual life this side of heaven. Hope is a, a part of what we must have in this world. It's what we can't live without. It's what forms the very foundation of our con confidence and certainty. Um, now, the two most common Hebrew and uh, terms uh, that are translated hope have the idea of weight. Well, excuse me, the terms are sometimes translated as hope and sometimes translated as weight. Uh, and it has the main idea of this, looking with eager expectation. Looking with eager expectation. Uh, looking to the future, looking forward, looking to God's promise with the expectation that God will fulfill it. That is the hope. That is the idea of waiting. And in reality, one of the greatest trials of faith, but also one of the greatest conditions where our faith grows is in this, is in waiting, is in waiting. Uh, steadfastness and patience is what the power of the Holy Spirit within his peoples enables them to hold on to. Patience, steadfastness, perseverance, waiting for God to fulfill everything that he has promised to his people. Waiting is hard, but waiting is where we grow. Hope is then the essence of gospel faith. This is essentially Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen or the substance of things not seen. Faith takes these promises of God and it lays hold of them as real upon those things that God has said he will do and that he has promised for his people. So faith and hope are inextricably bound. In fact, they're almost synonymous, uh, but not quite. There is a distinction. Hope, and, and the distinction is this, that hope has a decidedly future aspect. Uh, the, the very idea of hope is that we're resting in or taking confidence in something that hasn't happened, something that has not yet come about. It's in the realm of promise. It's in the realm of assurance. It's in the realm of that which will come about. Faith, on the other hand, lays hold of those promises, but faith is that present reality that because of a trust in those promises and the one who gave them produces hope. Hope then in that sense is a fruit of faith. It's a fruit of faith. One described it this way, faith includes hope, for hope is faith directed to God's promises for the future. Uh, just one quick note here uh, in the book of Colossians. I uh, love how Paul says this to this church at Colossae, but he says this as he's describing them. He says, we give thanks to God in verse three of chapter one to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Listen, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, 
What was the ground of this faith? What enabled them to have this faith, this, this love for all that produced this love for all the saints? Well, he says it in verse five. He says, if you're in Colossians one, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. They responded to the message in faith and by their response and faith to the message of the promise, not only of present forgiveness, but of this future glory and salvation, they had hope and their hope, which flowed out of their faith in the gospel produced in them love, perseverance, obedience, trust. It was because of their faith that they had hope. It was because of their hope that they had joy and the character of Christ being developed in them. Uh, one said this, uh, one theologian, the content of new life is hope. The life of believers is totally sustained and guided by hope. Hope characterizes their whole lifestyle. It is not a static possession, but living, active, and strong. It reaches out and binds believers to the heavenly inheritance. Well, if hope is built on promises, that means that the character of our hope, the reality of our hope then is shaped by the truth of scripture. It's shaped by the truth of scripture. We have a hope, not as a general idea, not as a vague sort of confidence, but we have a hope that is a specific hope in the promises of God, in the person and the promises of God. Listen to what he says in Psalm 119, verse 49. He says, remember the word to your servant, hear this, in which you have made me hope. In which you have made me hope. He's saying, God, remember to enliven in me and strengthen in me this confidence in your word because you have given me this confidence. You have opened my eyes. It is your word. It is your promises to which you direct my faith because that in your word then directs me back to you and to who you are. And in that my faith is strengthened and my hope is enlivened and strengthened. It is hope. It is hope that the word of God produces in us specifically according to God who is revealed there. Listen to uh, the book of Romans. And it, we'll just look at a couple of these, but in Romans chapter 15, he says it in this way. He says, "No, he says uh, each of us ought not to is to please is, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, um, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me." And then he says this: "For whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that so that the purpose of which, through perseverance and the encouragement of Scripture." we might have hope. So we're to look at God's work. We're to look at God who have gone before us. And as we look at them and as we see these things, hope is produced within us and we are given the confidence then to carry on, to carry on. It's built on God's promises. Paul says in Acts 26, 6, that we have hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. It's the hope of Israel is often referred to the hope of the Messiah. The Messiah is the hope of Israel. In hope, Abraham believed, and he even says, Paul does earlier in Romans, again, in hope against hope, he believed. In other words, what even went against what would seem rational to hope for, what was more rational was the reality of who God was. And so whatever human rationality would have worked against hope, the, react, the hope of faith that says, I'm not going by what I see, but what by God has said, he hoped and he knew that God would fulfill his promise. And he was faithful and God blessed him. One said this, the messianic hope from the period of the classical prophets forward was one of the major hopes, if not the major hope of Israel. It was the hope that God would fulfill his promises that sustained his people. Now, the hope of the Old Testament saint was realized in part at the coming of Christ and the accomplishments of all his work as redeemer. Uh, but even that was not the completion of it. That was the completion of the foundation uh, of his bringing about or accomplishing redemption. 
but it wasn't the completion of it in terms of all that God would accomplish through that. There is still the reconciling of all things to God. There is still the new heavens and the new earth. There is still the resurrection and so on. There is, there is still justice and righteousness yet to be met. There is still the end of our salvation yet to be experienced. But we do have hope and we know that God who promised is faithful and he will bring about everything that he has said. We know that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, Paul said in Ephesians. We know that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. We know that he who did not spare his own son, will he not freely with him give us all things? And we know that he who did not spare his own son, who will give us all things, who is working all things towards our good, is also the one of whom it is said that nothing can separate us from his love for us in Christ Jesus. That gives us hope. And even those words from Paul in Romans 8 are said in the midst of realizing that God's people will suffer in this present age. We have hope that our sins are forgiven totally and completely. We have hope that our righteousness is secured in Christ. We have hope that our righteousness is not, or that our evaluation is not ultimately going to be built or our, in our acceptance on our righteousness, but it is secured. It is certain because of what John said, that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one who is in the presence of God for us, who is our righteousness and who is our hope. That means that our hope is centered on scripture and it's centered on Christ. That's where scripture points us. Uh, what faith gives faith in God's promises in the sense of certainty is the glory then of the nature and the character of God as he has accomplished all things in Christ. As he has accomplished all things in Christ. And, and here's what else that does. Here's why that gives us confidence in the person of God, because think of the, the promise that was made in the garden the immediate after the fall that that one is going to come. who's going to destroy the works of Satan. He's going to crush the serpent on the head. There's one that's going to come that's going to undo the, the sin that has come on man is going to overcome the corruption is going to overcome man's rebellion and accomplish his purposes his original purposes for creation and that is that man would bring glory to god through the image of god in him that god's purposes and god's glory will be fulfilled and they will not be frustrated by rebellion either in the heavenlies or on earth that god will fulfill his promises what 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 scripture unfolds for us in the midst of that promise and everything that worked against it throughout the history of Israel, throughout the history of the church and of the world, is this. Why is it certain that that promise is the one who fulfilled it, will fulfill it? And who is God? He is the creator and the ruler and sustainer of all things. Nobody thwarts his will Psalm 103 says this, he who sits in the heavens does as he pleases. All the mounted rebellion of man cannot thwart one single promise of God or frustrate him even one second. As a matter of fact, he laughs at it. Isaiah tells us that they are less than nothing than meaningless, the nations and all of their rebellion. Psalm 2 says he laughs at the nations who are in an uproar to go against his son and his purposes in his son. No, God is, God is unchallenged in his sovereignty. So when God speaks, and it, only when God speaks, can we have absolute certainty. But when he does speak, we can have absolute certainty. We can be sure that God will fulfill his promises, not only because he is sovereign and the very unfolding of the gospel lays this before our eyes, but because God is perfectly holy. As the writer of Hebrews said, and Paul says in Titus chapter one, that God cannot lie. John says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There is nothing in God that could be an error. There is nothing in God that could cause him to change his mind. There is nothing in God that could in any way cause anything that he says to have any amount of weakness or uncertainty in it because he is holy. He is absolutely holy. And so when God gives us a promise, God will fulfill that promise. 
We see that in every detail of the unfolding of the coming of Christ and of the person of Christ. God made a promise and God will fulfill that promise and nothing, nothing can stand against it. Even in the darkest of times, we need to hold on to that. You know, we, we often sing that hymn, as uh, many of you are familiar with, in uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We sing it a lot of times in, uh, in, uh, during Thanksgiving. But we need to remember always when we sing that, the context in which uh, the text for that song was given. Uh, it was in the Book of Lamentations. In the Book of Lamentations, for those of you who may not be familiar with that, is called Lamentations because it is from the pen of the weeping prophet Jeremiah. And why is he the weeping prophet? He is the weeping prophet because he is the prophet who saw the destruction of Jerusalem. He saw the promises of the judgment of God for the sin of his people. He saw them come about. He saw, he saw God accomplish them. And it was great was this judgment and it was grievous was this judgment. And it was, it made him overwhelmed with sorrow in his heart and yet in the midst of the starvation in the midst of the defilement of the temple in the midst of the people being exiled from their land in the midst of the rebellion of god's people in the midst of all of the death and the most horrible consequences that came from the siege upon jerusalem he could write these words remember my affliction in lamentations 319 my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness, surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he, meaning God, has laid it upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust, perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter, let him be filled with reproach. For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. In other words, that's not God's ultimate goal. That's not God's ultimate desire. But in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the awareness of the sin of his people, in the, in the midst of circumstances in which it seemed that everything had been taken away, they had been utterly rejected, that all of the promises have failed. It is those promises in the midst of when the circumstances that seem to contradict them, that his faith rose up in the character what things look like right now, no matter what God's people are suffering right now, no matter what we are called to endure right now, no matter what consequences come from our sin, I have hope. God will not fail. He has made them in the certainty of his holiness. He will fulfill them in the certainty of his holiness and the loving kindness that he has sovereignly bestowed on us as a nation, even though now we have provoked his wrath, yet that will not be the end of the story. It will not be the end of the story. There is hope. Let us be silent and wait on him. Let the godly, even in the midst of a perverse generation, wait on him and be certain that he will bring about all that he has promised, even in the darkest times. Even in times of persecution in the New Testament, that same heart is expressed through the pen of the apostle Peter. Uh, we've looked at this in the past. Let me just briefly mention it to you. Remember that Peter is being written to believers who are scattered because of their faith. He's writing to believers that in an area just not been, uh, long after he writes this letter, uh, decades actually, uh, there is going to be increased in persecution, even from what they're experiencing now. So he's not writing to people who are sipping tea by the pool and working on their tan. He's writing to people who are scattered because of the gospel. And he says to them, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? To what? To a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through, a, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is imperishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he goes on. His hope, their faith in the promises, their faith in the one who fulfilled his word, their faith in the one who had died and risen was certain and strong. And their faith produced hope, and their hope produced endurance and obedience and the ability to live righteously in a godless age. It was not a, an age that was supportive of Christianity. It was not an age that was supportive of faith and trust in Christ. As a matter of fact, the whole rest of the letter is saying, when they malign you, keep your behavior excellent so that when they malign you, they may be ultimately brought to faith and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, live in hope in the midst of this world that, that others will see that, that others will see that and wonder what do you have that they don't have? But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, he says in First Peter later in chapter three, to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. It's hope, it's hope that makes the difference. And so, Though this can be weakened, though we need to uphold hands that are weak, we need to encourage one another. Sometimes we can lose hope. We can lose sight of this. And we can lose sight of it for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we lose sight of it, this hope, because the adversity or the struggle is so intense. Or the adversity and the struggle continues. It goes on and on in the very duration of it. Why we might have hope at the beginning as time goes on, that hope is weakened and we need to be continually renewed and strengthened. Job is a picture of that. He started strong, but his faith wavered and God corrected him. But in the end, his hope was restored. And there's a variety of other things that can affect our hope. But let me get quickly to this. What is the fruit of hope? What is the fruit of hope? What is the, the fruit of hope? Hope is necessary to life. Hope is something absent. Uh, from unbelief or those pursuits in unrighteousness. Hope is certain for the Christian because of the gospel as it's revealed to us in the word of God, as it's accomplished, for, as it has been accomplished in the person of Christ, as it has been demonstrated in the people of God and laid before us to view as we see their faithfulness throughout the history of um, the world. But what Christians have the Holy Spirit? because Christians have the Holy Spirit. So the fruits of hope and, and, and the reason that we hope and then the fruits of hope uh, are because of the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we have hope because things aren't yet what they should be. We live in this tension of already and not yet. There's things that God has already accomplished and there's things that are not yet fulfilled. And so we live right in the middle in which we have been made new creations, but we still have the reality of sin where we are certain that God will bring perfect justice, but we see injustice all around us and, and so forth. We're, it's, it's already certain it's, and in certain aspects have been already accomplished, but it's not yet, no, it doesn't yet know it's full fruition. It hasn't yet been fully um, accomplished as God will do it in the future. And so we, we require hope. So we require to be um, a people who are marked by hope in a way that others see it. And we can do that because we've tasted the realities of the age to come. We've tasted the reality of God's promises and now we rest on them. Uh, one said this, and it is of no slight importance for you to be cleansed of your blind love for self that you may be more nearly aware of your incapacity, to feel your own incapacity that you may learn to distrust yourself, to distrust yourself that you may transfer your trust to God, 
to rest with a trustful heart in God that relying upon his help, you may persevere unconquered to the end, to take your stand in his grace that you may comprehend the truth of his promise, to have unquestioned certainty of his promise that your hope may therefore be strengthened. So God tests this hope. We have this hope in us as a first fruit of the spirit. God tests this hope through the circumstances of life that it may be built up in us. We don't have time to turn there, Romans 5. As we, we have hope uh, that flows out of a character that's developed by faithful responses to trials, and it is the end of that hope, the end of that character, the end of that faithful response that we also come to know the great depth of the love of God for us. And if that is the kind of hope that's real and operative in us, what does it produce? What is the fruit of it? What is the fruit of these of the Holy Spirit in us? One is this. The fruit of hope first is praise. Praise. Let me give you Psalm 71, 14. In many passages, but just for time's sake here. Psalm 71, 14. He says this. Well, let's go to verse 13. He says, let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. Verse 14. But as for me, in the midst of those who are against me, in the midst of those who are seeking to harm me, he says, but as for me, I will hope continually. And what will be the fruit of this hope? I will praise you yet even more. And my mouth will tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long, for I do not know some of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord, and I will make mention of your righteousness and yours alone. So that they're bringing persecution, they're bringing conflict, the wicked are. And in the midst of that, he says, I hope in God. And that's, that's what Peter was talking about. Again, in the midst of the, the conflict of an unrighteous world, they'll see the hope of God's people that's able to have joy, that's able to have praise, that's able to have certainty. And they'll go, wow, that's different. That's different. But that's what the hope produces. Hope is not, and praise, the praise of hope is not in the absence of difficulty, but it shines most brightly in the midst of it, in the midst of the struggle in the midst of the discouragement, in the midst of the challenging circumstances. And it is in that context then that it grows. One said this, biblical hope does not reduce the ingredients of living, but adds God to the equation. Hope shouts not because there is no enemy, but because God gives the triumph. Hope sings not because there is no night, but because God gives songs in the night. The pulse of hope is praise. Again, it's not the lack of problems, and adversity that give praise. It is the certainty and hope in the midst of them that God is working, that God is near, that God is to be true. And go to Psalm 146, uh, verse 5. And he says this, Psalm 146, verse 5. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God. It brings blessedness. It brings a sense of joy, a sense of contentment, a sense of security, a sense of inner, inward stability when we have a hope in God. It inwardly rests in security and sweet repose, knowing that God, the God of heaven and earth, has your interest near to his heart, that he guards your ways, that he measures the strength and the ability of your adversaries, and he supplies every inward encouragement as you trust in him. Hope produces obedience as well. Hope produces obedience. When we hope in God, we obey God. When we hope in his promises, when we hope in the certainty of his salvation, then we obey him in whom we have placed our trust. We follow him who, in whom we wait and our soul waits and finds strength. Hebrews 12 says this after giving the, the hall of fame of faith, which he gave specifically as an encouragement to those who were becoming weak in the face of persecution. And, and so he encourages them and he says, don't lose hope, don't lose faith. And, and he gives us the, all those examples beginning with Enoch or Abel all the way down. And he says, look at them. They had faith. 
They had faith and they had hope in the promises of God. And then he and then he caps it all off with this. He says, therefore, in chapter 12, verse one of Hebrews, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. The idea? So that you may not lose hope. So that you may not lose hope. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And as we do that, and as we have hope in God's, in the future God has guaranteed for his people, it produces in us an obedience that he says, lays aside every encumbrance, everything that hinders that hope, that weakens that hope, that, that draws that hope down. He says, we, we seek to lay those things aside by the help of God and every, and the sin which so easily entangles us. It's part of our desire for holiness because as we pursue holiness, we have greater hope. We have greater clarity of sight in the promises of God. As we have uh, greater holiness, then we have greater assurance that God will fulfill everything that he has said. We have a, a greater taste and experience of his faithfulness and of his goodness. And so hope produces obedience. It assures us that nothing we do for Christ in this world is vain, unnoticed by God, or without purpose. We are bound in hope in the Lord. You feel unappreciated, unnoticed, or weary of working with seemingly little recognition of fruit? Know that the Lord sees your labors, and they will be rewarded in his own time. And what is the reward of your labor? It is the Lord himself, whom we serve and for whom we labor. He is our reward. Uh, hope produces joy. It produces praise. It produces spiritual blessedness. It produces obedience, the pursuit of holiness. Hope produces joy. Romans 12, 2 says, we are rejoicing in hope. Romans 15, 13 says this, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit takes these promises and he makes them, uh, he makes them uh, understood and he gives us faith and he nurtures that faith as we are seeking him and responding to him working in us. As the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see more of the glory of God, we have increased hope and we have increased joy. It, we have increased love. I won't go there. We read that earlier there. Colossians chapter 1. He says, I know of your faith and your love for all of the saints. Why? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the gospel, in the word of truth, in the gospel of truth. It's an expression of having experienced and received the love of God in Christ, the love of the Spirit who binds us to Christ, and, in, and the experience of sharing in this love with, of God with others who have also tasted it and want to, and then that makes us want to express. Well, I already mentioned um, to go with obedience. I'll mention it uh, separately, and that is holiness. There's obedience and holiness, and of course those those two things are intertwined with each other. But let me let me point you uh, to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, you're well familiar with this. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And such we are. And for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we shall, what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. How does that hope purify us by fixing on him? It is because as we, through the discipline of faith, and it's this having this hope fixed on him means then that we are, we are exposing ourselves to this hope in the word of God. It means that we are meditating and we are praying and that we are disciplining ourselves to think about the realities of Christ and the reality of this future and all the ways that God has described it. And as that happens, when we look to the future of what we will be in Christ, it connects for a true child of God with our deepest longings, with our deepest desires, with our deepest wants. And as we are focusing on that fulfillment of all of that, 
those deepest desires and wants, our heart and our affections and our minds are moved toward it and we become more like it. Why? Because that's who we are in Christ. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. So as we focus on Christ Jesus, we focus on the certainty of, of this promise being fulfilled. We, we focus on the reality of his glory and us being conformed to his glory. Then it produces the very thing that our hearts desire as we gaze upon him. And so that's how it works. And so he says, you've received a great love by the Father. We're children, and we know that when he appears, we will be like him in whom our adoption has been made and is secure. We will be conformed to him who is our head, who is our Lord, who is our God. And we'll purify ourselves. We'll purify ourselves. And there is the hope, too, that as we look to him and we remember the future, we remember that that's the future that's been secured for us. He says again, I want to remind you, because we will fail, because we will sin, because we will stumble along the way. We remind you of what he said earlier. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The hope is that you wouldn't sin and that you'd sin less and that you'd learn obedience. The hope is, is that we would not give in to our weakness, that we would overcome the sin that so easily entangles us, as the writer of Hebrews said. But but the fact is that we will sin. And so he immediately follows that. And he says, if anyone sins, we will have an we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And so we look at him, not only him to whom we will be conformed, and that that longing, because it matches the deepest desire of the heart of a believer, is also looking to him who has secured it for us, because along that way, until we are conformed, and while we're on this side of heaven, we will stumble, and we need that encouragement to say, it's been secured. Don't, when you stumble, let that take you out. Don't let that define you. Don't don't, don't let that be the discouragement that keeps you from moving forward. But remember, that sin has been atoned for. That sin has been paid for. And that doesn't make that sin less. It means all the more what we want to turn away from to follow him who loved us and showed us great love. And so there's help and encouragement to keep moving on. Let me end with this. Hope, the end of hope. Hope is ultimately eschatological. Now we're going to be hearing that term a lot coming up when we get to Revelation. It simply is uh, the study of the end times, is the study of last things, if you will. Uh, those things that are going to wrap up God's purposes for this, this age, uh, when the full realization of his promises will be experienced in the new heaven and the new earth. And guess what? When that comes about, no more hope. Again, as I mentioned earlier, why do we have hope? We have hope because things are not yet what they should be or not yet or not what they should be and not yet what they will be. And so that's hope. But if things are what they should be, uh, if, if that hope, if what we desire is realized, then there's no need to hope for it anymore because we experience it. And that's exactly the point that Paul makes. He says we know that that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan with our body. We, we feel the effects of the weakness of sin. We feel that the sin brings, we feel the effects of desires, and that is of holy desires, of, of desires for righteousness, of desires for joy and peace, which are in God alone, of love and worship and praise that we are so frustrated in this side of heaven. We, we know that groaning. And so he says, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. And that actually is another fruit of hope is perseverance, steadfastness, and patience. And so we look at the world around us and we go, this isn't it. This is not what it should be, but I have hope. That this isn't the end of the story. So I don't get overly discouraged. I don't get overly, I don't get in despair. I don't like these things. And there may be trials that we have to go through, but I'm looking to the one who's going to make all things right. I know this isn't the end. I know that Christ is dishonored now, but he will not be. I know that sin seems to have the upper hand, but that's not the reality of it. God will judge it. 
I know that now I struggle and it seems like failure after failure, but I know that the end of it will be is now that God is working in me, that God is, is shaping me to be like his son as I respond in faith and hope. But I know that one day that struggle will be over as well and I'll be like him and sin will be forever removed. Not only its penalty, but its power and its very presence from not only within me, but everything outside of me. It'll just be the full shining glory of God of the holiness and the beauty and the grandeur and the greatness of God himself that my eyes will forever gaze on and I will forever be being transformed from one image of glory to the next. I will ever be increasing in my love and my experience and my admiration and my worship of this glory of God and the joy and the love and the delightfulness that goes along with it with all of the, those who are present in heaven with God. And that's what we look forward to and that's what we hope for. We know that this isn't how it's always going to be, and we know that it's a part now, but it won't be forever. This is temporary. And so that's why God ends Scripture the way that he does. What was lost in the garden is regained, but evermore. The full intention of man being made in the image of God, the full intention of God creating a world for, for him to be glorified in our enjoyment of him and of this world and our love for him and following him. The, the intention of this intimate fellowship, which was always from the very point of design of being made in the image of God, a reflection of the son's own relationship with him. And so that we being made in the image of God is was ultimately to be fulfilled in Christ's taking on flesh and drawing us into his own intimate fellowship with the Father. And so that's what will be realized. And so God points us to the ultimate fulfillment of creation, which is to end in his fulfillment of redemption. And he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, the presence of God, the dwelling place of God. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll no longer be any death. There'll no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. First things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new, right? For these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And the one who overcomes, the one who overcomes in hope, the one who does not love his life to the end, the one who remains steadfast and trusting in God will know the full realization of this. And he says, it is written, the one who said this is faithful and true, the one who created all things, who redeemed all things, who rules over all things, who has accomplished all of his promises and will accomplish the ones yet to be fulfilled, will bring it about. He'll do it. And as Christians, we need to look at this and say, this is true. This is the end. This is what we've been saved for. God will do this. This isn't some fancy idea. This isn't some nice thing of the creation of men. This is the promise of almighty God. This is the promise of him who is Alpha and Omega. This is a promise. It will come about. It is true. It will not fail. God will accomplish his purposes. And we will love him and serve him and know him forever and ever in the most intimate fellowship beyond what we can imagine in its intensity. We get taste of it here. Oh, but the glories of that are yet to be known and discovered and we'll have all eternity to do so. And that ultimately then is the end of our hope and it all centers on the person of Christ, the person of God as he's revealed in Christ, the accomplishments of Christ, the love of the Father who adopted us in Christ, the love of our Savior who came and won our redemption, the love of the Spirit that produces in us the faith and the hope and the joy and the love that will characterize us in small part now, but in all of the glorious fullness forever and ever and ever. May you be encouraged by this, by a Christian hope. With that, let me pray and then we'll... Father, thank you for this hope that we have in your word. Open our eyes to it. Lord, when we stumble and fail, we are such weak creatures. 
We are so slow to lay hold of the promises. We are so dull sometimes to, to see and rejoice in the glories that we have in Christ. But Holy Spirit, would you by your word strengthen these things in us? Will you unfold to us the glories of Christ? Will you make us to feel deep within our soul, even as the psalmist, that our hope is in you? Will you draw us into deep fellowship with yourself, that as we fellowship with you, we will have greater and greater confidence in you? And know your sustaining grace in trial. Know your forgiving grace in our sin. Know your sanctifying grace in your word as you produce in us greater and greater holiness. May it reach down to all of our thoughts and to our affections and flesh itself out in the choices that we make and the lives that we live. Oh God, help us, keep us, and we know that you will help us to often think about and bring to our mind the end of our salvation that we may persevere and hold on. And Lord, for any who are struggling now with a weakness of hope, whether it be because of difficult circumstances whether it be because of a struggle with sin, whether it be because of fear and uncertainty of living in this world and what we see going on, will you encourage them with hope? Will you encourage them with hope? And our God will look to you to produce this and we'll look to your word to strengthen it in us. And it is to this end that I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. All right, well, may the Lord bless you and I look forward to being back with uh, everyone as I know that you do too um, next week. All right.